welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Are we on? We're on. I don't know if you guys, you never heard that song before. And do you know why? Because Joy wrote that song this week. Isn't that kind of cool? And uh, I think we got to give a, a real, well, that didn't work. We got to give a real big shout out, I think, to the to the worship team up here. Um, it, it takes a lot of courage to do what they did. They 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 improvised. They, they, they put themselves out there and they took a chance, they took a risk. So can we give them a, a round of applause just to thank them for all they've done? Uh, it's, it's really special. So uh, again, welcome everyone here in the theater and welcome to everyone online that's joining us. Uh, for those who have not yet been introduced to, my name's Ross Gilbert here and I'm the, the lead pastor at New Life. Uh, we're just going to do a quick attendance to make sure everyone is here. Um, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that's why you come to church is so that, you know, you can get the check mark beside your name and, and that way God will love you a little bit more this week. Uh, it sounds ridiculous, but that's how some people kind of approach church. And, uh, and the reality is why we get together, why we gather on a Sunday morning is an opportunity to have a, a time of worship, to have a, a time of encouragement through love and through prayer with one another. And also it's a chance and opportunity for us to study our Father's word. And, and I love that description for rather than just study the Bible or even study the scriptures, but studying Father's word, because that's what it is. It's our Father has, has written to us through about 40 different authors over about 1600 years, what we call the scriptures, what we call the Bible. And he's written in a variety of styles, but for one purpose, one goal. And that's that we would know him. In fact, you might want to think about the Bible as being an autobiography in many ways, because it's a chance for us to get to know our Father's Word. And so we study our Father's Word that we might know Him, that we might have confidence in Him and His love towards us, and that confidence will lead us to trust Him and His power in us. I love how the, the Apostle John, he described it this way in 1 John 5, 11 to 13. He says, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. Notice it's not something you're going to graduate into. He has already bestowed. He has already given to us. And this life, eternal life is in his son. So we have to understand eternal life is more than just a quality or a destination. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Which means if you have Jesus, you have eternal life right now. He who has the son has the life, has eternal life. But he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you, John says, that you would believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, that we'd have confidence, that we wouldn't be afraid, that we'd have confidence as we move forward. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Uh, not, not so much, right? And, and the reason that it's not so easy is basically, you know, what we've been studying these last number of weeks together is we, we don't operate in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is that we have enemies out there that are, are intentionally trying to disrupt, to sabotage. 
to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus says. And we've been studying and looking at those enemies and being Satan and his demonic angels that followed him in their rebellion against God. The world system that is basically trying to replace God and be a God unto us. And the flesh, or in some call indwelling sin, which is trying, all of them really are trying to control us, trying to make them a prisoner of themselves. And they do that primarily by attacking the character of God. Attacking the goodness of God. They're, they're trying to distort who he is in our mind, what we think of him and, and what we even think about ourselves and what we think about other people. And in doing so, it keeps us from running to him, from running to Jesus. And so what Paul's been doing in this passage, he's, he's implored us. He's, he's almost begging us, but more than that, he's commanding us that we be strong, but in Jesus not in our own power, not in our own might, not in our own strength, but in his might, in his power. And we recognize that it's his armor, the armor of God that is going to protect us. And so we've been seeing that we already possess this belt of truth because it's a truth that sets us free. And last week, we looked at the breastplate of righteousness, that this righteousness is, is a gift to you and I. It's God's righteousness, which is now our righteousness. A righteous apart from works, a righteous apart from your failures or your successes, but entirely based on what Jesus has done on the cross, which means that it doesn't diminish, nor does it improve because it's already perfect. And we already possess that incredible truth. Well, this morning, what we're going to look at is that we also possess the sandals that represent the gospel of peace. In Ephesians, 5, Ephesians 6, 15, he writes, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's right. Sandals. Maybe not the most fierce and terrifying piece of the Roman soldier's garb, uh, but, but it's powerful. If you give me a moment here, because think about where do the sandals attach? Your feet. And, and we take it for granted, but from a soldier's perspective, if they don't have a good footing, they're in trouble. Let me illustrate it this way. If I ever got into a fight with Mike Tyson, and I'm not talking prime Mike Tyson, I'm talking 20 years from now, Mike Tyson, when he's really, really old, I'm pretty sure I don't stand a chance. I'm pretty sure he's going to clean my clock with but one punch. However, you put us on ice with ice skates on. I can skate. I can hold my own on the ice. I'm pretty sure he can't, which means when he goes to throw a punch, he'll probably fall in his keister. Now, I'm still going to lose the fight. Make no mistake about that. But at least I got a chance because I've got firm footing while he doesn't. And that's how important it is to have this solid ground that we stand upon. And that's what Paul's alluding to. This idea here that we have firm footing. We have something to solid to stand on. And what is it that's so solid and firm for us? He says, it's the gospel, or literally the good news of peace. Now, that word peace here, I, I keep thinking that Paul being Hebrew, being Jewish, he's probably thinking more about the Hebrew word peace rather than the Greek word. See, the Greek word is Irene, and it just, you know, it's sort of like serene or relaxing and peaceful. And that's often what we think about. But in Hebrew, the word is shalom. And that word shalom is, is much more powerful. It's, it's much more beautiful. It, yes, it can be translated as often it is translated as peace, but it also means wholeness. It, it means well-being. 
It even means prosperity. It's, it's why when two Jewish men or women, they see each other, they'll say shalom to one another. They're really saying a blessing to one another that may you be well, may you be prosperous, may you succeed. Now, when we hear that, please understand, don't let your mind go to material success. Don't go to, you know, a bigger home and larger bank account and promotions and, and you know, a nice boat and so forth. Those are all wonderful things, but that's, that's not what really matters. Don't, don't trust in those things that will rot or rust or fade away. Instead, we, we, this wholeness, this prosperity that God is giving to us is something far more impactful and powerful because it's going to speak to our hearts. And so let's pray and let's see if we can understand this gospel of peace, this good news of peace that we have. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We look forward to the day that you do come and you come as, your, as the king riding on your, your, your steed with the army of God following you. We look forward to that day. But until that day, we are in a battle and you have prepared us in this battle with these, these firm feet, this, this solid ground upon which we stand that allows us to withstand the attacks of our enemy. And I'm praying, Lord Jesus, that you're going to portray that in a very special and very powerful way this morning. Teach and every one of us, regardless of where we are, that we would see how good you are to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, to, to illustrate this, I thought we would look at an Old Testament story, a little known Old Testament story. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's somewhere after Genesis and before Revelation. But uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, while you're flipping there, some people I've heard say, well, you know, we're in the new covenant. You know, we're, we're Christians and therefore we don't actually need the, the Old Testament anymore. We don't need to study it. And that's sort of passe. And we're just going to focus on the New Testament. But we don't believe that here at New Life, in large part because the apostles didn't believe that. They still quoted often from the Old Testament, and they were looking to Old Testament stories as a way to convey and communicate truth. And, and so that's what we get to do. The Old Testament shows us the character of God. It, it shows us his ways and his heart and his faithfulness. But also the, these stories, they become pictures or types where we can look at a story and see that it was more than just a historical event. It was a bit of a, a drama or a, a parable happening in live action. So, for example, the story of David and Goliath. That's a real story, but it's much more than just a little boy defeating a giant. We see Jesus portrayed through, through, through young David taking on the flesh, taking on indwelling sin on our behalf and setting us free. And so there's all kinds of great stories or portrayals in the Old Testament. And the one we're going to look at this morning is the story of Mephibosheth. Everyone say that, Mephibosheth. <laughs> Practice it because it's a fun word. I mean, when I, when God led me to this passage, I got excited because I was going to be able to say Mephibosheth. So it's a fun word on its own. But, but the story of Mephibosheth begins long before he is ever born. See, Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. That's right. That Jonathan is the son of King Saul. And, and, and so Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel. He was the next in line. So when Saul would have passed, it was going to go to Jonathan. But Jonathan had a, a, a close and beautiful friendship with David, who was the anointed king of Israel. 
And so you can see there's conflict now that, that by all rights, it was supposed to go to Jonathan as to be the next king, but God had already selected anointed David as king. There was all kinds of room for jealousy, all kinds of room for fighting and bickering and back and forth. And they could have been mortal enemies. That's not what happened. And a lot of credit, I think, has to go to Jonathan because the two of them were best friends. They couldn't have been closer because they had absolute trust with one another. So much so that, that even while Saul saw David as a threat, Jonathan saw a brother, someone that he deeply loved. And so while Saul resolved to kill David, Jonathan entered into a covenant with David. He says in 1 Samuel 20, verse 42, Jonathan says to David, go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. See, Jonathan knew he was never going to be king. He knew it was going to be David. And he entered into a covenant and he says, listen, this is the covenant. We're so close that I want my descendants to be your descendants and your descendants will be my descendants. That this is a a relationship and a connection that will run beyond just you and I. It will run into our next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And so they entered into a covenant. Now that, that idea of a covenant is so powerful. It's so beautiful because it's the strongest bond. It's the strongest promise that can happen between, between two people or two groups, meaning that it can never be broken. No matter what will happen, you will honor that regardless of the consequences because that's the covenant. And so the covenant here was they're going to look after each other's family if something were to happen to them. Well, after making that covenant, many years pass and Jonathan eventually gets married and he has children. And and David then goes on the run for about 13 years. Think about that. For 13 years, he's hiding in caves and he's living in in and out of Philistine in the territory just because Saul's wanting to kill him. He's wanting to track him down. And that search finally ended when Saul and Jonathan died in a battle on the same day, battling the Philistines. And at the moment that he dies, David is now king. No longer the anointed king, he is the king. Now, you have to understand the, the desperate lengths that, that people go to in order to keep and maintain that power. And what would often happen is, is when they, uh, the, the family, there was a change of family on the throne. What would happen is you wouldn't just kill the king. You would have to kill the king and his entire family. Because what would happen is somewhere down the line, there would be a claim to that throne and you risked a civil war. And so you wouldn't just wipe out the, the king. You'd wipe out the entire family. And that may still happen even today in in various tribes around the world. But the the last famous, most known uh, occurrence of that was during the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, where the Romanov family, the czars of Russia, were absolutely murdered, assassinated by the Bolsheviks so that they could never go back to the throne. And so we we see examples of this. And, And the nurse of Mephibosheth knew this. And so when word came back that, that both uh, Saul had died and Jonathan, the crown prince, had died, now it came to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth being the second in line suddenly is elevated to the king. But what chance does a little, little child, a little toddler, have against King David? You see, by this time, it had been at least 13 years since Saul, sorry, since David and Jonathan were around each other. 
And, and so this nurse, she probably never met David. She probably never knew the covenant. She probably never knew the friendship the two of them had. Instead, all, all she was familiar with was, were the stories. Yes, the stories of bravery, of how David slayed the giant, how David had killed his tens of thousands, of the bravery and the courage and the strength, but also the stories that he was enemy, public enemy number one, that he was a threat to the household of Saul. And so upon hearing the news that, that Saul and Jonathan were, were executed or died in battle, the fear was David was going to come and now kill Mephibosheth to end the line of Saul, to end the line of the threat. And that was the fear. That was the, that's what scared her. So she, she picks up Mephibosheth as quickly as she can and she flees, runs out of there as quick as she can. But in her rush, she fell maybe down some stairs or maybe down a hill or she tripped on something, but she fell and she landed in such a way that it crushed Mephibosheth, his legs or his spine or something that left him permanently lame. He could never walk anymore, unable to stand, unable to walk. And that was devastating for Mephibosheth because back then there was no at least Paralympic glory he could strive for. At that moment now, he becomes pretty much useless. He becomes weak and a burden and probably in the view of everybody has nothing to offer at this point. And so the, the nurse picks up this lame body and runs out of there and goes into the witness protection plan her program, hiding from David, fearful of one day David may be finding him. Well, I want you to imagine now Mephibosheth grows up in that environment. And, and maybe he asks his nurse one day, tell me the story again of, of how I ended up lame. And, and so maybe the story would go this way, something like, well, Mephibosheth, you're, you're going to be king one day. You're second in line to the throne. Your father, Jonathan, and then you. And, and then along came mean, selfish, cruel David. And he was trying to steal the throne from your grandfather. He wanted that power to himself. And, and so one day when your brave grandfather, King Saul, and your father, Jonathan, Prince Jonathan, died in battle, we got scared. We got scared because these men were protecting you and they died as heroes. But now we figured that this powerful man, David, was going to come to steal the kingdom away from you. So we had to defend you. We had to protect you. And, and we didn't know where to go because we figured David had his traitors everywhere. And so we had to hide you. And, and we've got to make sure no one finds out that you are, in fact, the son of, of Prince, da uh, Prince Jonathan. And so hearing that story multiple times growing up, how do you think Mephibosheth begins to think about David? He knows about his power. He knows about his strength, but he also probably figures that he's a cruel man. That he's not kind and, and caring, but that he's so powerful that this lame Mephibosheth doesn't stand a chance against him. And given the opportunity, he'd wipe Mephibosheth off the face of history. Well, a, a number of years now pass when David becomes king. During this time, Mephibosheth grows up, he has his own kids, but, but also politically a lot was happening. When, when Jonathan and, and Saul died, the, the first thing that people did is they took another one of, of Saul's children, Ishbosheth, and they tried to make him the king. And for about a decade, there was a civil war between who was the actual king. Was it David, who was the king of Judah, and, or Ishbosheth, who was the king of the other tribes? And, and so that went on until finally Ishbosheth was, was murdered 
And now finally David becomes king. And then there's more battles with the Philistines and rescuing the ark. And all this goes on for who knows how many years. But in this time, Mephibosheth grows up, has his own kids. And things now begin to settle down for David. He's, he's got a firm hold on the kingdom. And it's, it's at this moment then now where, where David asks the question. In 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, he says, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone, anyone still remaining from the house of Saul, my enemy, the man who wanted to kill me, that I may show kindness? Now, the the Hebrew word here translated kindness is the word hesed. And it's a beautiful word. It might be my favorite Hebrew word because of the power of what it is. It's, a, it's not just kindness. It's, it's a covenantal word. It's like a legal term. And it's translated here, you know, kindness, but in other places it's translated as this everlasting loving kindness. And that's a mouthful for just a little word called hesed, but it speaks to the power. It speaks to the significance that this word has, that it's permanent everlasting. It never fails. It never changes. And it's this loving kindness. It's, it's this grace, this goodness. And and what David is asking now, is there anyone from the house of Saul that I can show grace to that I can love for Jonathan's sake, because of the covenant that I made with him, that, that I can now love his descendants. You see, although many, many years had passed, more than two decades, maybe even three decades had passed since he made that covenant, David had not forgotten. Well, in in verse three, Ziba, one of the the servants of, of, uh, of King Saul, upon hearing the question directly being asked to him, he answers, he says, well, there's still a son of Jonathan who's crippled in his feet, though. Notice he doesn't actually use his name. Because his name's been replaced with lame one, weak one, crippled one. And basically, Mephibosheth is now defined as being useless, powerless, weak, inadequate, insignificant, worthless. Don't even think about him. Now, maybe Zebo is trying to protect Mephibosheth, knowing that maybe David was asking to kill him. But I don't think that was the case. Because David had told Ziba, I want to show him a said covenantal kindness. But Ziba, his view of Mephibosheth was just so low. He was worthless and meaningless. He didn't, master, he didn't matter despite the fact that he was the grandson of his own master. Well, in verse four, David says, well, where is he? I can almost imagine the excitement. There's someone that I can show the love I had for Jonathan on. Where is he? And Ziba says to him, well, behold, he's in the house of Makar, the the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar is the name of the town. And it, it literally means without pasture or pastureless. So he's basically in this desolate place. It's harsh. It's dry. It's fruitless. It's a worthless place. I imagine that Lodabar's chief export are the tumbleweeds that it just naturally develops, just blowing through town. It's, it's clearly not the place that you would expect the once second in line to the throne to spend his retirement years. 
But that's where, that's where Mephibosheth is hiding. That's where he's hiding out for fear of his life. Well, in verse six, he finally gets drawn out. He finally gets dragged before David. And they carry him there and he, he presents himself in front of David. And it says in verse six, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. The word prostrate gives you an idea of, of he, was, he was coming and he, he goes basically nose face, does a face plant into the ground, nose in the dirt. And he's basically throwing himself at the feet of David going, well, just pronounce your, your sentence. Kill me now. Get it over with so that now you can secure your throne. It's yours. See, Mephibosheth, he has no memory. He has no knowledge of the covenant between him and his father. His father, Jonathan, didn't live long enough to tell him. And so he was completely oblivious, completely ignorant of what was his, but believing actually that, that this man wanted to kill him. And so he, he prostrates, prostrates himself on the ground and David says, Mephibosheth, almost with glee and excitement. And he just says, here is your servant. Kill me now. And in verse seven, David says to him, do not fear. Someone, someone counted the number of times it said, do not fear in the scriptures. And they said it reached about 365 times. One for every day of the, of, of the year. And, and it's been said that it's actually the most repeated thing God has spoken to his creation. Do you think it's because he knows the fear that we have? The anxiety that we have, especially in the presence of God. What will he say to me? What will he do? How will he treat me right now? I'm, I'm such a screw up. I've, I've blown it and I failed it over and over and over again. I just can't seem to overcome my addiction. I can't overcome this anxiety. I can't overcome my struggles. I can't overcome the bitterness. I know I'm just such a disappointment to him and to others. Don't be afraid, God says. David says, don't be afraid for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He's, in, he's invoking the covenant and restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and eat at my table regularly. He offers him grace and peace, grace and shalom, wholeness. Because I, I will show you this said, this everlasting loving kindness, covenant love, because of the covenant I made with your father, Jonathan. And it's, it's not dependent upon who you are, Mephibosheth. It doesn't matter that you're lame. It doesn't matter anything about what you've accomplished or not accomplished. It's because of a covenant I made long before you were ever born. You had no part in this covenant, but you are a benefactor of it. You can imagine what, what Mephibosheth is thinking. The, the passage would seem to imply that, that David kind of lifts him up because he's off the ground and he, and he hears it. You can almost imagine the, the shock of this as it's, as it's processing through his mind. You're not going to kill me. But, but did, did you just say you want to restore the land of my grandfather? Did you, did you, did you invite me to your table? This, this, this doesn't compute. This is not what I've heard. And so it says in verse eight, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you regard a dead dog like me? 
So he basically hears it in shock and he just does the nose plant again. And he calls himself a dead dog. That's a a familiar phrase at that time. We might use a different one, a a piece of stuff, maybe. Piece of stuff, piece of garbage. That's the word. That's the word I was thinking of, right? Uh, Nobody says, why would you do this for me? I don't deserve this. I don't, I don't, uh, who am I to get this? The sheer shock and amazement of of what Mephibosheth is processing hearing upon this. And then, and then David looks around at his, at Ziba, the servant. He says in verse nine, all that belonged to Saul and to all of his house, I've given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him. And you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He's basically assigned now Mephibosheth, a small army to care for him, to work the land. Now going from low to bar, a pastureless land to one that was fruitful. And he says, I'm going to provide you your servants. The people are going to look after it. They're going to run it. All you get to do is just eat off the land. You're going to prosper from that. But he goes beyond that. And he says in verse, what? 11-ish. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servant. So your servants will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Do you see it? He treated Mephibosheth like he was his own son. I read run commentary on this and they, they said, well, maybe, maybe David just had, wanted his claim close, right? Sort of like keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. So maybe, maybe David just wanted Mephibosheth at the table so we could keep an eye on Mephibosheth to make sure he didn't lead any kind of rebellion. What? You missed the point. I mean, Mephibosheth is not about to lead a rebellion. He's got no army. He's got no standing, no pun intended, to do that. Instead, David wanted him there to love on him, to care for him, to treat him like his own son. So in verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. You know, his land wasn't in Jerusalem. It was, I think it was north of Jerusalem. That's where Saul's lands were. But he lived in Jerusalem because he wanted to be close to David. He wanted to enjoy the fellowship and he ate at the table regularly. And I kind of like at the end, they were reminded, by the way, he was still lame. It's not that what he brought to the table wasn't what he, what he offered David. That wasn't what it was. David was simply after the friendship and the relationship. He was out to love on him because of the covenant he had made with his father, Jonathan. He's treated as a prince. All right, let's, let's draw some parallels here. And, and I, whoever's in that corner behind the light that I can't see, why don't you go and let Robin know that he can bring the kids back over. But let's draw some parallels, right? Because the, the picture here is you and I are Mephibosheth. 
Our, our own father, Abraham, sorry, Adam, was rebellious and he squandered the land. He squandered all that was given to him when he sinned in that garden. And in that moment, we lost our birthright. We lost all that was ours. This world was meant to be reigned and ruled over by you and I, by mankind. And we handed it over to Satan in the garden. We lost all that. And now we find ourselves lame, weak, fearful, anxious, feeling insignificant, inadequate, and living in a desolate place a fruitless place of our circumstances in this world where we're surrounded by just emptiness. We're in a a world where there's just all kinds of anger, division, mistrust, loneliness. We're Mephibosheth in Lodabar. But there exists a covenant. There exists a, a connection, a promise that the king, God, made with his son, Jesus. Jesus being both son of God and son of man. Jesus is what Jonathan is to Mephibosheth. He's, He's to us. And so God makes this promise, this covenant, God and Jesus, that you and I are benefactors of. We benefit from something that happened long before we ever did anything. Long before we ever earned it. And so this this grace, this promise is offered to you and I. It's an invitation, he says. An invitation, he says, to come and, and dine with me. Eat at my table regularly. And what's beautiful about the covenant isn't about you. It's not about what you've accomplished It's not about how many verses you've memorized, what your attendance is at church, the last time you sinned, how much you've given, how much you've sacrificed. It simply isn't about you. It's about what Jesus has done. It's the covenant between God and Jesus. It has said this everlasting loving kindness that he's wanting to bestow upon you and me. And it all took place long before you were born. All that awaits now is for us to take him up on the offer. You see, this grace is displayed where where it's an invitation to dine with him at his table. Ephesians 2, 6 says, you and I presently are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ at the right hand of the Father. You're already there. You already possess it. You don't have to go do it. You don't have to accomplish anything. You already have it. Again, this, this gospel, these sandals of the gospel of peace, having already put them on, having already possessed them, now seated at the table, seated at the right hand of the Father, so that the Father can treat you the way he treats Jesus. Now we have access to God. We have this, this intimacy with God. It says in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, that he's given to you and I everything you need for life and godliness. We have every spiritual blessings in Christ. We have eternal life, his life, resurrection life. Think about that. Resurrection life is a life that has already conquered death. This world will throw death at you. It will try to humiliate you. It will try to to shame you. It will try to bring you down. It will try to control you. But the life that is in you, Jesus, is greater than this world can throw at you. That's ours. That's what we have right now. 
And, and I want to ask the question, though. What if, what if when Mephibosheth is given this promise, and he's given his land, he's got everything, but he doesn't actually come and sit at David's table? So he's, he possesses all, but he's got his land. And maybe he goes and he lives on that land, but he never actually goes and he sits with King David. What would he have missed out on? He'd have missed out on that friendship and that relationship. And I wonder how many of us are like that. Well, we've come to Jesus. We've accepted this covenant. He's restored to us life. We, get, we have this connection, this union with him, but we only really visit with him a few times each year. I'm not talking about going to church, you know, on Christmas and Easter. I'm talking about more than just reading your Bible or, or how often you say your prayers. I'm talking about actually communing with him, actually listening to him or, or sharing with Jesus your struggles or, or leaning in and relying upon his strength. Because that's available to you and I each and every day. To come to the table and sit with Jesus to discuss your day. The good, the bad, the ugly, to seek his counsel, his wisdom, to talk about the, the, the situations you're finding yourself in, be it with your marriage or parenting or addiction or temptation, the fear, the anxiety, the despair, the election, the, the, what it means to live under COVID, what the kids going back to school soon and, and all of that. He says, come to me and let's talk. Come sit at the table. And let's share this meal together. Let's share this life together. So that when you go back into that situation, when you step back into the world, you don't go alone, but you go with Jesus in you, providing not just the way forward, but the power and the strength to be ready to be unleashed through you the moment you ask him. And so while the world we face is crazy, it's filled with uncertainty. It's filled with division and anger and mistrust, all amplified when we find ourselves under COVID. All of it just made a made hundred times worse. But you and I, we possess this gospel of peace, this gospel of shalom, of wholeness and well-being and prosperity, even in a time such as this. So we're going to celebrate communion. And we've got this very COVID-friendly packet here. It, uh, it, really, it really is pathetic um, compared to what we're celebrating here. But it's also ingenious. So the engineer in me says, well done, whoever came up with this. Because the top has your, your wafer. Uh, and, and it's a wafer more than a cracker. Uh, I think they basically just take a piece of paper and punch holes. And then that's what it is. Cause that's what it's going to taste like, but you've got the wafer on the top and then we've got the juice underneath. And, but communion is a celebration of the covenant. It's a celebration of what, what Jesus and, and our father have, have entered into on our behalf. Just as Mephibosheth was the benefactor of a covenant between David and Jonathan, we are the benefactors of this covenant between father and son. And so the, the night of Jesus' arrest and, and the trial and the beating and the, the day before he went to the cross and died, he was ce celebrating and sharing a, a meal with his disciples. And he had taken some, some bread. So go ahead and, and pull out your wafer. 
And he, he broke it and he gave each of them a piece of, of bread. And he said, this, this is my body. This is my strength. This is my power. And it is given to you. And so do this in remembrance of me. And they ate the bread, the body of Christ, broken for you and I on our behalf. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten and saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Meaning the strength and the power and the value of the covenant was judged by the sacrifice, judged by the blood in which it was, it was uh, uh, being honored in. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ, the son of God, no less. That's the significance of this covenant. And he says, do this, drink of this as a reminder of what is yours. And it's this invitation to come and eat regularly at his table. More than a symbol, it's an opportunity to connect with and relate to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we... Um, we're honored, more than honored. We're overwhelmed that you would do this for a dead dog like us. Someone who's scared and lame and, and pathetic at times and fails over and over and over again, that you would willingly sacrifice everything, that you would willingly offer yourself on our behalf in a covenant promise, not for your sake, not so that you would, you would be trapped in a covenant, but that we would have confidence in the sure footing, in this peace that we have with you, that we're not enemies with you anymore. Instead, it's a promise for you to provide grace and peace, grace and shalom, grace and strength and prosperity and wholeness and well-being. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've given to us. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.